Welcome to Love Love Tennis, where tennis talk starts. I'm Ruth Dobson Torres, host of the Love Love Tennis podcast. The goal of this episode and all future episodes is to promote the sport of tennis by sharing diverse and interesting opinions and voices about all things happening in the tennis world today. So let's get started. Hi, everybody. I am excited about our Love Love Tennis podcast guest today. So let me tell you a little bit about him. Originally from Rio de Janeiro, he started playing tennis at the early age of five years old with kids in his local neighborhood. He competed in tennis championships at the regional and state level in Brazil until around the age of 14 when he decided that he no longer wanted to compete and play the game. However, he went on to play college tennis in the U.S. for two years at Penn State Harrisburg in Middletown, Pennsylvania, before hanging up his racket again for a few years and then returning to the sport again during the global COVID-19 pandemic. Today, he spends his days working as a senior global project manager and diversity, equity, inclusion leader at one of the world's largest technology companies and volunteers his time as a tennis coach. Tennis is his favorite sport, and through his coaching, he is sharing his passion for the game and lessons learned with his students that can be applied to help them achieve success both on and off the court. To quote him directly, he is someone who has a, quote, purpose, quote, and self-fulfillment in helping people of all ages achieve greatness one hit at a time and one day at a time. With all of that said, welcome Rafael Fulton Fernandez to our Love Love Tennis podcast. I'm so excited to be talking to you today, and we're so excited that you're a podcast guest. To start us off, um, I want to go back in time a bit, back to Rio de Janeiro, and I want to ask you, um, I know you started playing tennis so young. When did you first realize that you loved, loved the game of tennis? Uh, was it an immediate attraction? That's that's a very good point, and I appreciate you asking. It's, it's a pleasure to be here today, and I started playing. I was so young, and I think it was just a part of one of the things that my parents wanted me to do. Uh, I used to play soccer. I used to swim. There were so many activities at school at that time. And at that time they had early in the morning, my parents wanted us out of the house. So my brother and I, my brother was a little bit younger. So I remember myself and and I starting with a group of friends and it was a group of four people. Uh, I was uh, twice a week, Tuesday and Thursday, nine to 10 30. And it was just something really to get out of the house and from five to seven, uh, we were just playing. It was just a way of having fun. It was a way right. of um, of having all the friends together. But I remember seven or eight was when we had our first tournament. Was when the the, the club where was close to my house that they hosted the first the first tournament, and we started playing against each other. I think that's when it started clicking a little bit of oh, I really like to play this game. Oh, uh, yeah. And between seven and ten. You know, years old, I think that's when really started hitting me a little bit of, okay, I want to play a little bit more. Uh, so it wasn't necessarily something that I started with, oh yeah, I really want to play tennis and I'm going to do this uh, competitively for the next 10 years. It was just more <laughs> an activity that became years later, something that I, I really enjoyed and, and was passionate about. Okay. Okay. Um, well, 
back then, um, you know, since you did start so young, I want to ask who were your idols on the um, pro tours? And um, I know you share the same initials as Roger Federer, but you also have the same first name, Rafael, as Rafa Nadal. So, yeah, just I'm wondering, you know, who, who were your favorites back then and as you were coming along? Yeah, it, it took me so long to realize that I actually had the same initials as Roger Federer, to be honest. It wasn't until <laughs> college that I realized, and, and this is an interesting story, because in college, you can't wear a hat that has any other thing on it. It can only be the logo of your school, or if it's only, you know, a Nike or Adidas or just the logo of um, off the hat. And it was interesting because I could wear the Roger Federer because the RF initials on the hat were my same initials. So it was okay for me to wear the hat, even though it wasn't mine. But growing up, absolutely. I, I came through, you know, the era of 2002, 2003, when uh, Guga Kirtan won Roland Garros, you know, between 98 and 2002. So in Brazil, tennis was so big, right? The first Brazilian to win uh, Roland Garros for us, it was like, wow. And two years later, as I become more aware of tennis, Roger just starts winning, you know, starts winning against Pete Sampras 2001. And right. then you go all the way to 2004 against Agassi. And you see that shift from an older generation, which is so similar to the shift that we're seeing right now. But that older generation yeah. with Roger and his 20, 22-year-old. And a year later, Rafa comes comes along and starts playing amazing games and, and sets against Roger Federer. But growing up, absolutely, Roger Federer was my biggest idol not only within the court but outside of the court uh i saw that shift from him when he was more of growing up growing from teenager to being an adult when he used to break records at the 19 20 years old all of a sudden he's just this super gentleman and outside of the court he's always willing to talk to people and starts creating all of this amazing things we see today and, and that's the picture that we, we see him on on tv nowadays and, yeah. and that's what he's famous for but growing up just seeing him i mean he was able to speak eight languages able to go from one media to another media talking in german to french to um english and, and for me that was so amazing to see how he could be such a good player and a good influence within the court and and being someone that is never so stressed and it's so calm right. and he wasn't breaking records. So it was a good uh, picture of, of what an idol is. It was a good picture of what a tennis player should look Absolutely. like in, yes. in addition to winning tournaments and playing amazing. I, <laughs> I think he's still the best player I've ever seen play. Uh, but he was definitely my idol. Rafa, absolutely amazing too, <laughs> just in a different capacity. I saw Rafa more as a predecessor to Roger rather right. than a, a major competitor. But growing up, uh, Roger has been Roger. My, okay, my idol for sure. That's awesome. I know um, Guga, I guess as you would say, I have a funny story. I was down at the Miami Open a couple of years ago and actually got to see Rafa play Roger in the final. That was lucky for us. And I'm a, a big Rafa fan. I also love Roger. Roger won. But in the elevator at the hotel where we are, we were, I stepped onto the elevator and um, Guga was on the elevator with me. Oh, and awesome. so that was just sort of a fun tennis moment. But that, that memory just popped in my head. <laughs> That's awesome. That That's is great. absolutely awesome. It's great to hear. I agree with uh, all the comments you made about Roger. He's he's fabulous, was and still is. Um, I was going to follow up um, to ask, at what point in your youth, um, I know that you took some time between, you, you know, you were playing, uh, I think, some junior level tournaments and regional at the regional level, the state level in Brazil, at what point did your passion for the game sort of subside? And, you know, how long of a break did you take 
before you started playing in college. Yeah. And, and I think we're going to talk a little bit about competitive as well, but I think it was very early. And, and when you take tennis on a very early age, especially as you're playing tournaments, it's such a mental game. It's a game that, you know, at 10 years old, you start playing. And I started playing competitively. I was 10. Uh, I had just moved to another city from Rio because of my, my parents' work. And we had moved to a smaller city where I could play quite a lot. And, and the, a lot of the players today from Brazil that are becoming pros or are pros, they, they come from the city that, that I moved to. So it okay. was very interesting because we had these teenagers that were so good. They were very, very good. And I wanted to be like them. I wanted people at 12 years old that they were winning, you know, the, the nationals and they were winning regionals. And I wanted to be like them. And I started playing really competitively for about three, four years between 10 and 14. Uh, and then at 14, I kind of had to make a decision. First, mentally, I was not prepared for the game. You know, every time I won, it was great. But every time I lost, I was definitely not prepared. For me, it was you know, the world is falling apart. It's, it. I'm not good enough. I can't be here. And it took a toll, not only on me, but it took on my parents too. Of Every time we're traveling and we're, we're driving you almost every week into all of this tournament, if you win, it's awesome. But every time you, you lose, you just spend days and, and weeks on, oh, I, I lost this. And I was overthinking so much during the game. Mm-hmm. So I think at 14, I did have a small injury on my back. It okay. wasn't something major, but I had to start doing PT and had to really strengthen a lot of the muscles because all I was focusing on was playing tennis. So mm-hmm. I really had to step back a little bit and understand, do I want to keep playing tennis where mentally is being really tough for me competitively? Or do I want to just, I think it's best if I just step away, focus on my studies and, you know, have tennis as something that it's going to be more fun. But it was really tough because right. four years of my life, you know, between 10 and 14, after we had moved, all of my summers were spent on summer camps. And the ones that I could play tennis, I would come from school and go straight to, to the tennis courts and play tennis uh, for hours. It was something all I wanted to do was yeah, play was tennis. Life. Yeah. <laughs> so if I talk about a break, I think it was between 14 and 19. It wasn't a full break, but it was definitely a competitive break. It was in a place where I wasn't spending that much time playing tennis anymore. I was mostly, you know, once a week, twice a week hitting. Uh, I had a coach and and, uh, I still talk to him today. He lives in the U.S. uh, And I found out that not too long ago. But it's been it's been a journey. It was a journey of about four to five years just hitting once in a while uh, to you know, coming back and and coming back really strong when I was, when I was about 20. Well, that is so interesting. You would say that, um, you know, and hearing, I I love hearing that, um, that that was your experience because I'm sure that is the experience for a lot of other um, youth and, and at the junior, at that age and the junior level. And I, one of the things we have with Love Love Tennis, we do have an, an Instagram presence. And interestingly enough, a lot of the followers on Instagram are young. They are in the age group. I mean, they're seven-year-olds, 10-year-olds. I found it very interesting to see who they are and where they live. And a lot of them are international and they're in, you know, Russia and, you know, other you know, places around the world, Brazil, um, we have following. And so I'm sure if they can hear this and we will be sharing it, of course, on that platform, but I think they're going to appreciate what you're saying. I, for me, I, 
I didn't play ever really competitively um, in my youth. Um, in high school, I started ninth grade on the high school team and I was just number eight. So I played doubles. I, I didn't get to start singles, but I can imagine that was a lot of pressure that you felt. So interesting. Tell me, you, you know, you said you got back into it. I understand that you came to the U.S. and you played with um, Penn State Harrisburg in Pennsylvania. So can you talk with me about how that happened? Yeah. And you made that, you know, because that is stepping back into the competitive arena big time. So yeah. <laughs> at the college level. So I'd love yeah. to hear, hear more about that transition. Yeah. And, and it's a, it's an interesting take of events and turn of events as it goes throughout the years. Cause um, I ended up and I'll, I'll do a, a little bit of a segue in my story too, is it was very difficult when I was 14. For me, it was more of myself challenging myself every game because, and, and I think, when when I write about it and I talk about tennis, it's, it's such a unique sport because it's a lot of times it's you against you. I mean, of course, there is an opponent on the other side of the court, but it's you against you. It's you not overthinking points. It's you making sure that every point is is a fresh start. So coming from not playing when I was 14, I lived in Germany and it was actually one of the centers of Germany of tennis. It's in Hamburg. I lived right outside of where they have the Hamburg tournament. And I I was there for a year and a half before I moved into the U S and as I was there, there was, there were tournaments and I was never so interested. You know, I used to watch tennis on TV. I used to follow Roger. Uh, My dad and I, we, we talk about tennis quite all the time because we love to watch. We used to wake up early in the morning to watch Australian opens. You used to be late at night watching us open. So for us, it was always so interesting to have that uh, relationship with tennis, but between 14 and 20, I, I barely touched a record and it was once a week, you know, let's, let's practice a little bit. Okay. Coming in, coming into the U S that was the interesting point. I arrived at Penn state. uh, I was about 20 years old. It was August. It was warm. And I went to hit with the friend at the, because I had brought a couple rackets and I was like, okay, let's, let me go hit with someone. It's been a while since I hit the ball and they were doing tryouts on the same week. Uh, and it's Penn state Harrisburg. It's not a D one school. It's a D three school. And okay. I didn't know at that time what D one or D three or D two right. or anything. I, I just knew that I had friends from Brazil that played with me that kept playing. They all came to, to uh, play in the U S. So I had yes. friends playing all over the U S that grew up playing with me. And interesting was I went to do the tryouts uh, I come to do the tryouts. Uh, I end up getting into the team because, you know, I, I I beat someone and I didn't know exactly what it was. I didn't know the numbers and how it worked. Again, <laughs> a reminder to all the listeners, we do not have tennis in Brazil. There is no tennis in high school. Uh, there's only tennis as you would like to do as an extracurricular outside of school. So sports in college or in high school are not necessarily the same way that you see in the U.S. That doesn't okay. have the teams practicing and playing against other teams and you go to regionals and conference, there's not anything like it high school wise in Brazil. Oh, okay. So coming here and doing the tryouts, they, they told me, Oh yeah, you're going to play at number five. And I'm like, okay, number five is, is great out of six. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. And I'm like, okay, five, five is great. And I start playing, but then it became something that was much more than playing because it became Every single day, I had a three-hour practice. So I think it was from 4 to 7 or 3.30 to 6.30. Uh, plus, I had to go to the gym every morning. Uh, and the coaches, you know, made sure that we went to the gym sometimes. 
right. no one would go. So it was like, okay, you, you gotta go, but you don't have to go. But for me, it just became a routine. It was Monday through Friday, you gotta play at least three hours a day and you gotta go to the gym and you gotta get strong. So right. the first semester was was so nice. It was only fall, we didn't play that many times, but again, I was getting back into the competitive point of view and it was taking a very similar toll on my mental health uh, as it was when I was younger. I wasn't prepared, even though I had matured enough to be able to be back on the court. I, I wasn't prepared to uh, be out on the court at all times and, you know, playing competitive again. So right. for me, it was such a nice transition because I was back in the court. I was playing. It was really nice to play. But every time I went into playing against other schools, it was, you know, I had to really think about what is going through with me and in my head that I knew that I could win against the person on the other side of the court. But a lot of times it would be, it's taking so much of my mental energy uh, yes. to go through all of that. And that for me was, it's great to play competitive. And it's amazing that I was able to get back into a sport that I absolutely love. Right. But it does take a toll if you're not prepared mentally to be part of competitive again. Yes. And interestingly, I know Iga Swiatek, who just won um, oh, Madrid, I think um, she's on a roll. I think 27 matches in a row. And he's yep. the last people who've done that. It was like Serena Venus and uh, Justin Hennon, I think. But she travels with a sports psychologist. I've touched on that. But, I, I, you know, hearing your story, it just makes me wonder, you know, uh, now I think probably that's becoming more and more common yeah. to have that. And I, some of our guests on the podcast, one of, um, one of them was a mental, you know, training coach um, who works with youth. But, um, you know, the pressure is incredible. So I, I, I get it. I, I'm only, you know, recreational at USTA 3-5, but I play singles and doubles and the singles matches particularly. I mean, that really is your, it's just you. And it's like playing against yourself. And I've been doing a lot of reading, uh, the inner game of tennis and other, you know, um, Brad Gilbert's book. We have a Level Up Tennis book club. And so I'm trying to, to include books. We're trying to include some of those that do speak to the mental aspect of the game. So yeah. this is very interesting to hear you say that that was such a big part of your experience uh, yeah. with, with, you know, growing up with tennis and then into college. So, so where are you at this point? Uh, you know, can you talk about the evolution from college then to where you are now? You know, when did you pick it back up? And uh, I think probably the pandemic, I know, you know, really opened up the sport of tennis because that it was something that people could play at a social distance. So is that around, you know, part yeah. of your story? I, I think so. I think I, and I'll mention, I, I, I love that we can talk about mental health, you know, especially after the pandemic, I think more openly, but it, yeah. it was so interesting to see as well, Marty Fish coming out with the documentary about him and Roddick and, and just talking the entire history of Marty Fish of growing up in the, in the shadows of Roddick. Right. But, you know, just yeah. dealing with so much mental health and so many issues until one day he stops and he says, I can't do this anymore. And the day that he was ready to do it again, he goes and becomes a top eight player again. So it's just so interesting that throughout his, what people would call the best age group, you know, between the 18 and 25, where he could actually achieve the top eight, he ends up becoming top eight in his late twenties, early thirties. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I haven't hearing, seen that. I have, yeah. I've seen clips of that. I would like to see it. Um, yeah. but I, I'm, 
it's a great it's a great documentary and it really talks about mental health and i mean we've seen over the past three years we've seen naomi ozaka taking a break we've seen uh, kirigios last week just talking about his mental health and we know that it affects if it affects the top players it affects everyone else that is in the game you know they've made it so far uh even impacting with them with even with the impacts of mental health and having yeah. all of the resources available to to become a top player uh, everyone deals with that. So just an acknowledgement of mental health is out there. And tennis is definitely a, a, a game that it's it's you within you. And as my career evolved, and I'll mention after college, the last thing I wanted to do was touch my racket. I, I remember playing then for three semesters where the second semester I made number one, third semester I was number one. And then my last semester I played as number two. Uh-huh. And it was great. You know, I went to play some great, great players everywhere. Right. But it was so much traveling. It was so much tense. It was yeah. playing so much every single day and practicing and working out. And even in the summers, you had to work out because you yeah. had to come back uh, to play again. So for the two years that I played for Penn State Harrisburg, it was a great, great, great place. I met amazing people. Uh, I actually met my girlfriend in the court on my first week. Oh, and, wonderful. <laughs> yeah, it's a, a story of, of, of love within tennis. Uh, yeah. But it's it's very interesting, everything that tennis has given me throughout the years. But as soon as I finished in 2017, I said, I need a break. I really need a break from, from playing. And okay. I moved to Pittsburgh, and then I ended up moving to Raleigh, uh, where I've been for almost four years now. Okay. For a little bit over four years. And during the pandemic, as you were saying, I think that's where I decided I had to not only find something where I could volunteer, where I could give my time to others, but something that I was really passionate about. And that's when I started looking for uh, things around here in this area where I could volunteer and use tennis for something that it was much more than me. It was giving to others and uh, helping others achieve what uh, in, in my case, it was success after many years. It wasn't the competitive, it wasn't the collegiate, it wasn't, you know, going regionals and playing being pro, but it right. was giving and understanding that the knowledge and the expertise that I gained throughout the years, how can I pass that on? How can I pass that to uh, kids, adults, and people that, because tennis is becoming so famous and, and became really yeah. famous during the pandemic, how yeah. can I pass that um, experience along to to other people. That is so wonderful to hear. And I know um, I interviewed uh, on the podcast uh, Lou uh, Taft Welch. She um, is executive director with the um, Abilities Tennis North Carolina, where they're working with um, stu- you know individuals who have um, you know disabilities and helping them you know play, which is just a great story. I love hearing your perspective and how it almost sounds like you've come to a a piece uh, with tennis or you evolved to like almost Zen. It sounds like where you've gotten to a place where you're, you're back with the love for the sport and you're doing, you're playing it. And, and I was going to ask, are you still playing? No, right now, right now, all I do is coach. Okay. Yeah. But right now, all I do is coach. You're just coaching. So, and, and also I did want to mention on the collegiate front, I've heard similar stories from people who have had the college scholarships for swimming for soccer and some of the local universities here in the in the triangle area just how intense and how disciplined it's it's like a double-edged sword it's it's a great thing and they've all said that but I've heard many say that they needed a break after their college experience yeah. so and then it's also interesting to hear that you met your girlfriend um, that is similar to Roger Federer you yeah. know, Mirka I believe he met uh, her on the court um 
let me let me let's delve into a bit more with what you were talking about related to mental but to competition I want to ask you um, related to competitive tennis play versus playing just for fun um, tennis, you know, we, we talked about how, you know, the pandemic and, and just, it seems droves of people are playing it now. Everybody's getting involved, which I think is great. And that's part of what our mission is here at Love Love Tennis to open the sport up. And I know the USDA has tried tennis programs and all of that good stuff. Um, but I've had a number of people tell me that they don't want to compete, uh, they don't want to play USTA. They just, they, they, they're they expressing some hesitation about tennis because of feeling like it's competitive. And, and then I he, I'm hearing different things on the pickleball front, you know, that that's like fun, but tennis may be a little more intense. And so I wanted to ask you from the people that you're coaching, the individuals, do you, you know, what are you hearing from them? And do you think that there's always uh, going to be a competition factor that just is there? Do you think that people can just go out and just, play for fun when it comes to tennis? Yeah, it's, it's a good question that you ask because first, I think Tri Tennis is one of the most amazing programs I've seen so far. I actually got to learn that this program existed during the pandemic and I've seen people doing for almost, and I think it's been, you know, there for about four or five years. I, I heard people actually two weekends ago where they're adults, they retired and they, they pick up the record about four years ago as Tri Tennis uh, because it was an inexpensive way to start tennis. They gave you all of the equipment. They gave, I think, Tri Tennis is six lessons, and they started with it. Uh, so Tri Tennis is a good program for someone that never played tennis before, where you have the equipment. You don't know what kind of equipment you want to get. Uh, but if I talk about a little bit on the competitive front, tennis, right. they're always going to be USTA, UTR, and we're looking at other areas uh, and Raleigh being one of them, where there's so many um, tournaments going on. So from an early age, kids are encouraged to play tournaments, mostly because uh, it's a way of, of course, you competing and, and learning the competitive skills that it's okay to lose. It's okay not to be the best. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it's that way of learning on uh, how to uh, play with an opponent how to be because life is you know playing against opponents right life is playing against all the things that are going to come uh, your way and how to <laughs> deal with this this problems but even with kids we try to encourage kids to go play tournaments where they know the other kids so that it's easier because you are playing with them throughout the weekend you're playing with them when you're uh, academies and you're playing with them on your lessons that it's easy to go out there with someone that you already know and hey you lost you won the next right. tournament you're gonna you know maybe win and if you lost the, the first one but I think there's always going to be this aspect of being competitive now when you ask me is tennis more competitive than pickleball I think it is mostly because there are more tournaments available. I don't think right now pickleball is growing right. and it's going to keep growing and it's going to keep having more tournaments, but tennis is still uh, a bigger sport and tennis is a sport where there are so many tournaments available that people do believe that once they start and they feel that they are um, getting, or they feel they're getting better that they, the first thing that they need to go to do is go to, to do a competition or, or a tournament. And because it starts with a very early age with this competition and this competitive uh, mindset, uh, I think that's that's where uh, tennis uh, splits a little bit from what pickleball pickleball is or, or any other sport. Right uh, here. That's here interesting. Yes, 
I would agree. I would agree. And, and on the back to the mental health point, I have had a, so many people who have told me that they don't think they could have survived the pandemic without playing, you know, so on, on the flip side, there's a huge mental health, I think, positive aspect to playing too. So there's the pressure, but then also it's like, how great does it feel when you hit a winner? I mean, oh, yeah. those overhead slams and, <laughs> you know, sometimes that for me personally, it's just, it's just, I can't even describe it, but I, it's something that for me, I get into a flow of, of the game. And I think that that's helpful for a lot of people that you lose yourself in it. Um, and sometimes if I've worked all day and then I had a match at night, I would find myself maybe the first two to three games, not being able to let go of what had been my business world day. Um, but then it, it never fails. I will just, it's like my brain will click and I'm in it, you know, yeah. and then I, I'm, I'm, and then it's almost like you can get into that zone. So it's like, yeah. You repeat runners and that sort of thing and the running high that that runners describe I do think that there's something to be said for that with tennis too yeah that's how I feel I mean every time I'm, I'm hitting and I'm actually hitting and I get in the flow of hitting yeah I do that for 30 40 minutes and and that's all I want you know you just start hitting you just feel your balls are going in and yeah. you're hitting those approaches where they go very close to the line and you just feel really good and it happens with me that once a week where uh, after my lessons, I, I do have a few people here in the area that they are my students, but they also are really, um, uh, I'll tell you, a really high level, which hitting with them is just amazing. I mean, you get on that flow and you're hitting 30, 40 ball rallies. You're just like, wow, this is this is how I feel when uh, I feel really good on the court. So it, it's definitely a competitive game. But if you go out there to head and you're feeling yeah. good and you're in that moment where there's nothing in your head, all, all you're thinking about is is to hit the ball. It's feels good. It feels it really does. good. I, I agree. Um, so more about your coaching. Um, I want to um, ask you about a blog that you recently wrote. Um, I enjoyed reading it. Um, you wrote about five lessons that you said um, you've learned from serving, I'll say pun intended, <laughs> as a tennis coach. And you say that these five lessons can be applied on the court and also applied in other ways in life. So for um, our listeners who may not have seen your blog post, or I think you, I saw it on LinkedIn. Um, so uh, if they haven't been and seen that, I want to touch on these lessons a bit with you because I think they're great. And the first one you highlighted was communication. And I know you said that through coaching, you've learned and seen that each player um, has takes different communication and understands movements differently. So I wanted to ask if you could elaborate on that and how you've been able to apply that lesson, you know, outside off court in other aspects of life. Absolutely. I work in a global company and I've been working in a global company for about four years and we have to stop to think every time you are in a conversation, everyone is going to take the way you're communicating differently, mostly because of background, cultural differences and the way that people were brought up. So I may communicate in a sense that for me is very clear, for other people may not be as clear. So I may say things of directional or I may say things of organizational that once we get on a call, if the communication is not clear for everyone, messages are going to be 
understood differently, regardless how you say. And sometimes even with the non-verbal communications, physical communications. So it's very interesting that on the court, a lot of times I'm going to have six or seven players where I'm coaching that you have to talk differently and understand what's the best way to communicate with each player. Now, there are some players that they are quieter, but once you explain once, hey, they got it. There's nothing else you have to say. Everything is very clear from that first time. Other uh, students and other players, you may need to repeat the movement. Uh, you may need to show the movement. You may need to adjust some little things a few times until the communication is more clear. Uh, and especially as you're on the court and you have to scream from the other side of the court uh, to a lot of the students, you do need to make sure that every time you're saying something that is very clear, it's very loud, it's very clear for all the students. Right. So I'd like to relate a lot of the communication skill set that it's learned while you're coaching and while you're teaching to everything that I do in my normal uh, day life job. Because right. in every call, and especially being virtual, every single call that I have with anyone across the globe, my communication needs to shift. If I'm on a call with people from Brazil, my communication is a little bit more clear. It's a little bit, you know, and it's in my own language. It's easier for me. But sometimes in English with people uh, from Europe or people from China, my communication needs to be a little bit different depending on um, first what their cultural background is and second, how I want to pass that message on. So it's really a way of thinking how you communicate with others verbally, non-verbally, but making sure that the message that you're trying to transpire is actually going across in the way that you want to. Otherwise, it's, everything is going to be misunderstood. <laughs> yes, so important. Um, my uh, background, you know, in the corporate world is marketing. Um, I was a journalism major with a public relations uh, concentration. So it was all about audience and considering who the audiences are with your messages. I have not really thought about that on the tennis court as much, but interesting to hear you as a it totally, I see where you're coming from as a tennis coach, because that you're, you're trying to get the same point across to different players. And so that's so interesting um, for me. I'm going to consider that further um, after, after we talk today. Um, let me ask about different players. One quick question, different types of tennis players, like the serve volleyers, big servers, spinners, the baseliners, drop shotters. I know we were seeing uh, Carlos Alcaraz, uh, you know, fabulously uh, executing some drop shots lately. But um, which type of player did you dislike playing the, uh, against the most um, whenever you were playing at the collegiate level? And competitively, and also, how important do you think it is for a player and those you're coaching to master a variety of shots? Yeah, that that's a point where when I think when I think back to playing competitively, one thing I did not like to play was against left-handed, so forehand left-handed. For me, it was so difficult because I was always used to you know to place the ball on someone's backhand, and for me to adapt. And that's something that I had to learn throughout the years to adapt to other people's play is very difficult. Uh, so, of course, people that have really big serves, uh, people that are, you know, that have an easy way of going from the baseline to the net, very difficult to play against. But for me, it's always been the most difficult to play against lefties. Very, very hard. 
never, never got a way of winning, you know, maybe won a few times, but I remember the number one in our school, he was a lefty and we had to challenge a couple of times and it was always such a close game. I just couldn't get a hold of changing my game enough to a point where I could, uh, where I could win against lefty. So very difficult. But one thing that I, I have to say is, regardless who you're playing against, you're always going to have to be a little bit adaptable, understand what your strengths are and understand how you can adapt to the other person's play. And that's the same thing in life. There are going to be situations where uh, in your job, you're going to have to adapt Uh, with your manager. You're going to have multiple managers. Everyone is going to have a different leadership style where you have to adapt. So there are so many things within learning to adapt within your game and throughout your game, because people are also going to try to change their game throughout the set or throughout the entire game where you're going to have to adapt. You're going to have to be flexible and being really patient with yourself. Uh, Patience is something that throughout the game, you miss the ball. Okay, be patient. Think about the next one. What can I do to improve on the next ball? And hey, I missed two in a row, you know, two two double faults, right? That's one thing that we talk a lot about. Two double faults or one double fault. If you start thinking too much, there are going to be three double faults and four double faults. And when you see it's a whole game away. So it's always being patient and calm. And it happened twice. Okay, what do I need to do to do a fresh start? Start from from the beginning and let's see what happens in the next point. Because if you start overthinking, it just starts in that loophole of, okay, double fault after double fault after double fault. And and you're just going to get in a point where where you can't come back from from where you are. So it's really being patient and calm and understanding what's next. Interesting. Um, And I think that was the second lesson you read about was was patience. But interesting that you were touching on that as you were talking about variety and what you have to combat when you're playing. And um, in the business world, I know there's a lot of talk about managing to strengths versus weaknesses. And so as I'm hearing this, I'm thinking, you know, I think even I read the book, Discover Your Strengths uh, once at one point in my career. And it, it is a choice to, if you've got a really strong serve, and I actually think serving is just you know, a, a true differentiator for so many people, but I, and I don't think people focus on it enough in practice. Um, that's just my personal opinion. But if you have strength in your game, should you be focusing on your strengths or getting back to what I was asking about this variety? And you were saying you do need to be adaptable, flexible. I wonder, you know, it's so many people see the mistakes they make and then they, they go to a coach like you and they say, I've got to work on my, you know, I've got to be able to beat the left-handed player. I'm coming up against, you know, I've got to focus on this. And maybe they lose a little bit of what their core is. So I, I guess it's a balance, right? To Yeah, it, it's definitely the balance in between understanding. You need to understand what your strengths and weaknesses are. Absolutely. Okay. You know, if you never can hit a drop shot and all of a sudden every game you want to hit only drop shots, if you haven't practiced that enough, tennis is all about practice, about repetition and understanding where you are on a certain day. But being adaptive and being flexible, even though you may have a great serve, that are people that are great returners, that are people that they're going to return with the lob every single time you just serve. And right. if you don't have that lob um, understanding of how to return a lob, you know, if you're going to be aggressive and everything goes on, the, on in the net because you're getting a lob and you don't want to return as a lob, you want to return as being aggressive and everything goes on the net, you kind of lost a game or entire got, lost the set to someone that only returns your serves as lobs. So it's really understanding, okay, I do have a very great serve. 
what else do I need to do to adapt my game if the person is a really great returner, if a person can really return that serve really well. So it's really understanding every single game. And sometimes you start with a great tactic and in the middle of the, the match, the person understood exactly what you were doing and you start losing game after game because you were doing right. the same way that someone, you know, changed their game to, to beat you. I so it's really that. understanding right. that. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, back to patience. Do you think there are particular points um, and, so, so, and, and points is pun intended here, but particular parts of a match where patience is, you know, maybe more important? Or do you think it's, you know, for example, like a tiebreaker? Are there particular times when you think patience is really important when you're playing competitively? Or do you think it's just sort of it needs to be cutting across the entire match? Patience is in tennis, the best or the biggest virtue you must have. Patience on every game, in my opinion, in every single point in every game is understanding where you are at that specific game. Because patience is going to come really well as you're starting the match, understanding what the other player's strengths and how the other player came about to that exact match today. Uh, so it's understanding a little bit, okay, maybe you lost the first game, but you understood what the player's trying to come with. So you're being patient, understanding, okay, I may have lost the first few few points, but here it is. That's how the player's trying to come across. And then you go throughout the game and you start winning or you start losing, but you start understanding what it is that you need to do to win. Hey, sometimes it's not going to work out. Sometimes the player is just so great that or you're not in a good day that even being patient is not going to, to help you. But being patient throughout the game, not being uh, a person that you're losing, you start breaking records or being upset at yourself. A lot of times it's just trying to understand okay, what can I do better? Can I play my best game? Can I change a little bit of what I'm doing? Can I be more consistent? Can I uh, put the balls on the sides of the corner? Can I go more to the net? Can I change the way that, you know, I'm going to serve and I'm going to volley? So there are so many ways that as, you, as you're going through a specific match or you're going in life through a specific situation where right. you can be patient and understand. And I like um, one thing that, that I learned throughout uh, my career so far is the 24 hour rule. You know, it's being patient that sometimes you're going to get an escalation or you're going to get something that you're really not uh, excited about. And a lot of times, instead of being that moment where I'm stressed out and I don't want to reply with something that I, I really don't feel like I should reply, I have the patience. I'll, I'll give tw 12 to 24 hour rule and uh, tw 12 to 24 hour of 24 hours to be able to respond to that, where my head is clear, I'm patient, and I can actually do something that, you know, later I'm not going to regret. So I, I try to use the same thing for tennis as I'm giving some advice is, you know, as you adapt and as you're flexible, there are a lot of times that if you start overthinking and worrying too much about it, you're not going to see clear, you're not going to be calm and patient to understand what are the things that you need to do to be out of that situation, to clear out and, and maybe even win the game. Yeah, I love that. I love that perspective. Um, it reminds me how important it is to pause, the, you know, which relates to patience. And I was someone in the corporate world who immediately wanted to respond to every email. I did support a lot, you know, my background, executive communications. I've worked with a lot of executives. So when you're working with executives, you know, you do need to respond to them when they ask you a question. But I, I tended to to do that. And then I, I realized it took me a few years, but I, I realized it's OK to pause. And hearing you say that, I think that's it's so critical in, in, in the corporate world. And back to what you were saying about 
different audiences and, and how something might be received. And then hearing you say you can do that same thing in, in a tennis match. It's like, I, I feel there's so many people that do get frustrated so quickly and impatient with themselves. And then they, they, they go too fast and they double fault or they, you know, and they just, it just will spiral, but it's so important to take a, take a breath and to be patient. So thanks for sharing that one. Um, I know the next lesson that uh, in your blog, I remember, and that was the one now you've sort of convinced me, I'm thinking maybe patience might be the most important. The one that was really meaningful for me of the five um, was consistency. And, um, Having said that, I want to ask you, why, in your opinion, is consistency important when it comes to mastering tennis and mastering life in general? That was for me. And I think that is still, if you ask any of the students that I, I volunteer coach uh, every weekend is consistency is probably the word that I say the most outside of move your feet and run. Consistency <laughs> is probably what I what I say the most. It's because I, I go to tournaments and I usually see great players that uh, they start being so aggressive at all times instead of thinking about consistency. Tennis is all about consistency. Of course, tennis is about people that hit um, winners and people that hit aces, but you can hit as many aces and winners as you'd like. If you're not consistent, consistent in your practice, if you're not consistent in your game, if you're making more errors than you're getting the balls in, even if you make a million winners, if the other person make, made more points than you throughout yeah. the entire match, that person is going to win. Because at the end of the day, being consistent, and we say putting the ball on the other side, uh, is the person that's actually going to win. So I like to think about that, you know, in, in anything in life, being consistent and showing up every single day, showing up for yourself, showing up for your family, showing up for your friends, showing up for work. This is really what makes the difference. It took me a long time to understand. And, and this is this is a message that I wish I had understood when I was younger. But going to the gym, right? you're not going to be strong in three months. You're going to be strong in 10 years. You're going to, and I like to, to relate right. that back. I, you know, I'm, I do CrossFit and I started last year. And one of the things about CrossFit that I understood was I just need to show up every day. I just need to go there five right. to six times a week. And sometimes I'm not going to feel good. Sometimes I am going to, uh, I didn't sleep really well. I had meetings until late at night, but I'm showing up. So I'm going to decrease the weight that I'm doing, but I'm still here. I'm going to do the workout, maybe not as many repetitions, but I'm still here. And it's showing up every single day. It's showing up how you eat every day, how healthy you are with positive messages. It's yeah. just about consistency. And I, I really wish I had understood that years ago. But now that I do, uh, I try to focus a lot more on how can I show up today for myself? How can I advocate for myself? How can I advocate for my colleagues at work? How can I do the things every single day that maybe they're going to be very small wins, but there's still a win. And if I consider a small win every day, that's, that's been consistent. And, and I'm sure in the future, it's going to bring a lot of successes. I absolutely love everything you just said. And I feel really blessed. Uh, my uh, partner in life, my husband, he also plays tennis. Um, he is a, family is from Spain, uh, Gallego, and they're sort of known to be hard workers, but he is one of the most positive and disciplined people I've ever met in my life. It, when he hears this episode, he, he's also very uh, quiet and introverted, and he may not want me to mention that, but uh, I'm going to say, but hearing some of what you said, I've really been uh, blessed to live with someone uh, who inspires me in that fashion 
to consistently show up. And half the battle, I think, in life is just showing up, you know, like you were saying about getting to the gym um, and, and doing it consistently. And that's one thing that I feel like um, that sort of positivity um, spreads to other people. And it, and you also, when when it's genuine, and I can tell and from hearing you that what you're saying, it's, it's like what you live by. And then you're affecting those you're coaching. I'll just tell you, like, I, I very much enjoy hearing that. That That's inspirational to me to hear you say it. It reminds me of my husband um, some, but, and I also have tried to do that in life, but I do think it, it takes growing and, um, you know, living a little to, to get there for some people. Um, wouldn't you agree? It's, it is a, a life learning thing. Yeah, it, it does take some time. And then I appreciate the, the fact that, I think during COVID, a lot of us were able to do self-reflection. A lot of us were able to, as you said before, step back and understand what really matters. And at the end of the day, it, it took some, some people some time and maybe a few hurdles here and there uh, to really understand what are the things that actually matter. And one of them for me was, okay, my mental health and my personal health and my well-being is something that really matters. What are the things that I can change uh, to make sure that I am showing up for myself every day, uh, that I'm showing up for the people around me every day, and that I can be consistent regardless what's going on in the world. Because a lot of things, they're outside of my control that I cannot change, you know, right. even though they may be horrible and they may be devastating just to see a lot of things I can't change. But what I can change is my my mindset and the way that I'm looking at things positively and I'm showing up for myself every day, regardless what that is, if it's eating well, if it's going to the gym, if it's, you know, showing up for the people at work and showing up for the work that I got to do, I, I think it's just uh, being there for, for the people. It's, it's what really matters. Thank you for sharing that with our listeners. Cause I know so many people are going to really relate to that and what you've said, just said about the pandemic and putting things in perspective. And so, yeah, showing up, being consistent, it's so important. I, I think you had two more lessons. One of them uh, was life is a journey and sometimes a competition. And when I read that portion of your blog, it, the Frank Sinatra song, I don't know if you would know it, That's Life is the name of it, but it, one of the lyrics is, uh, you're riding high in April, but you're shot down in May. And um, for some reason, when I saw that lesson, life is a journey and sometimes a competition, it just made me think about the ups and downs in life and that sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's, you know, it's not so good. We have the challenges and that's just the way life is. So can you tell us a little bit more about this lesson that yeah. you're right about? And, and it's, it's the win-lose perspective. It's sometimes you're going to win. Sometimes you're going to lose. Sometimes you're going to have a horrible day. The next day, you're going to have a great day. So there's always a new day where you can come in and start fresh and you can come in and start as a new day. Not every day is going to be amazing. Hey, some days they're going to be horrible. Some days are going to be awful. But the next day is a new chance for you to create something better. Uh, my, my dad used to say tomorrow will be better than today because, you know, it's not that today is not great, but tomorrow is a new start and a new chance that you have to make it better. Uh, I have this on my wrist and, you know, I show people where um, him and I, we have this, where we always share that, you know, today may not be the best day or it may be the best day, but you have a chance tomorrow to make it better. So when I say life is a journey right. is first, a lot of people are going to say, and I try to, 
to go by that, you know, life's not a, a sprint, it's a marathon life. It's something that you're going to take through the entire time. And for me, it was really difficult. I, when I graduated college, first thing I was like, okay, how can I be CEO tomorrow? Right. <laughs> what do I have to do to become CEO tomorrow? This is what I want. I want all of the great things that come with it, but it never, I never stopped to realize that, Hey, there's a lot of work to get there. Plus yeah. I may get there and and what is the outcome, right? So it's really understanding that it's enjoying every step of the way. It's enjoying the the steps that we have in life. And there's not a necessary age that you need to accomplish things. There's no deadline. It's it's an entire journey. And it's the same thing as tennis, right? It's an entire match. You don't have to win the first game and lose everything else. Or you don't have to, you know, go and win the first point. And then everything else is just horrible. It's understanding that you have that entire match. And throughout the match, you're going to win some. You're going to lose some. But if you keep your perspective positive and hopefully playing positively as well and playing really well, you are or you may end up winning. But you don't know what the outcome is. You just know that it's an entire journey and you have to go through that journey winning or losing. Yes, yes. Um, that, I really appreciate that perspective. Um, something that popped in my head too, when you were talking about you wanted to be that a CEO coming right out of college and wanting things, not necessarily understanding yet what it takes to, to get it and to stay there. Um, I remember, and again, I'll bring it back up. I just ironically in the business world, you know, was able to report to a couple of CEOs. And um, I remember how sometimes the, you know, and organizations obviously do um, support the CEO, um, but even at the upper management, mid-management level, I noticed that, you know, often people emulate others. And um, I remember reading, and I wish I could recall the name of the book, but the concept was there is no top, that, that once someone reaches that level, then what? That they they still they don't view necessarily that they're at the top. There's always something more. So the journey continues. You know what you were saying. It is, it's it's wins and losses, but it's also not necessarily about. And I think relating it back to tennis, it's not necessarily about winning the ter- a specific tournament or reaching. You know, it's. I mean, obviously you, you set those goals, but then once you're there, life goes on. And then what? So I think it, that's also sort of a, um, a, a different paradigm way to think. Um, when, and you, I think it can be applied, you know, in the business world, definitely to realize that those who hold some of the upper level positions are just, you know, normal. You <laughs> know, they're, they're just like all of us. They, they, they have good days. They have the bad days. They have the wins and the losses. But it's there's not necessarily, um, you know, an end. And uh, the other thing to think about, I know you're fairly new into the business world, it sounds like, you know, so many years, but realizing that there, then there's at some point, 30 years out or however many uh, you may work in the, in the corporate work realm, uh, then there's the retirement aspect too. And so life continues and the journey continues. So I, I'm sort of adding that in. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and if you think about tennis, you know, relate back to tennis, everyone wants to be the number one or kids want to be pro tomorrow. Once you get to number one or number 10 or what happens next, right? You win, you win, you win. You're there, number 10 or number one. And what happens next? You know, then you have, okay, now I got to maintain number one. And hey, maintaining number one or maintaining being the top 10 is probably harder than getting there because then (laughs) you got to play really well for 10 years to, you know, be maintaining that top 10. So it's really understanding that the entire journey, everything that, that is about life, 
they're yes. going to be ups and downs. And, and that's why I mentioned that it is a competition. Competition is understanding you're going to win sometimes and you're going to lose sometimes. Right. And you need to be okay with both of them. Not saying that you need to be upset or happy or vice versa when you're doing one thing or another. But of course, it's cherishing and accomplishing all of the things that you would like to accomplish. But understanding that when you lose, uh, there are going to be other days where you're going to I come love that. Yeah, what your you and your dad reminded you know that my dad used to tell me you know the sun's going to shine tomorrow, so it's that same idea that you have a chance for tomorrow to be better, even if today was a great day. I love that. The last lesson I know, and it sort of relates. I think it made me. Um, it's all in your head. Is is your last final of the five lessons and that you wrote about? And I wanted to say that it made me think about the former Duke basketball coach and Olympic basketball coach Mike Shashevsky. You know. Um, he recently, you know, uh, re- retired uh, from Duke. But um, I remember him once talking about the Olympic basketball champions, the really great ones, Jordan. I think it was called the Dream Team back in the 90s. But yep. Jordan, uh, Pippen. And he said that all of those guys really had a – the reason why they were champions and what differentiated it was that they have a next play mentality, um, meaning they don't hang on to the last mistake they made. And so I was hoping you could – Give us your perspective about what you mean, your lesson. It's all in in your head and um, how important that is for for players if they want to be successful. Yeah, it's it's all in your head for me means there are a lot of things that we end up not doing because it's in our head. And there's a lot of things that we prevent ourselves to do because it's all in our head. And I'll give a few examples. You don't want to reach out when you're a teenager to that person that you would really love to date because you think you're going to be rejected. And then life goes on and you don't want to reach out to that manager, to that person on LinkedIn because you really want that job. So you end up not getting it. You end up not wanting to present in front of people because of the syndrome that you have of speaking in front of people, but then not not one person is going to know what your message is. Everyone has a story. You have your story to share. But if you don't overcome what's in your head, how are people going to know what your story is? And some people do that via writing. Some people do that via speaking. But it's in your head. If you don't start somewhere, you're not going to be heard and you're not going to be able to tell your story. And tennis is the same thing. You lose a point if it's in your head that you're not going to make the next point. You are not going to make the next point. If it's in your head that you're not right. going to be able to overcome your three double faults, you are not going to be able to overcome your, your three double faults. So it's really how do you put that positive mentality and that really some things I just need to go and do it instead of in your head overthinking, what if I do this? What if I do that? What are the 1 million outcomes that can happen from that what if that I'm going to be putting in my head? And I like to tell this to myself because I used to ask myself, and I still do in some situations, what if, what if, what if? What's gonna happen if I do this? What's gonna happen if I do that? And a lot of times all I need to do is, is, is actually do it. I just need to you know, write that LinkedIn post, you know, overcome my imposter syndrome, or get on a podcast or talk to someone or reach out to someone. A lot of times it's just overcoming the fear of whatever it is in your head and just taking action. Yes. Yes. And on on the court, I have to say, I've been that person. I remember I had double faulted. I was playing doubles with another woman and a lot of people were watching the match 
And it was the, it was a tiebreaker in the first set. And I double, it was in my head and I double faulted and we lost that first set. And then we lost the match, but I really felt like for me, it just did me in that, that whole next set because to have so many people watching and they were supporting, it was part of the, you know, our team, um, you know, the, and just doing that in front of others, but that affected me as well. But I wonder, do you suggest to your students that you're coaching um, for them to write things down? You know, I have seen some of the professional players and I know Brad Gilbert in his book, Winning Ugly, he talks about, you know, having your game plan and all that. But do you have any tips for how somebody can get better at having a next play mentality or like, okay, shake it off? You know, I just double faulted in front of 40 people. Okay, clean slate, second set. Do you think, you know, having a little notebook that reminds you about that might help or <laughs> I'm just practically, cause I yeah. know, you know, I, I, I totally think it's necessary, but it's like hard sometimes to execute on, on yeah. some of these um, ideas. So I didn't know if you have any tips. In life, I definitely do the journaling. In life, I really do. Hey, this is struggling. I'm struggling with this. And it's definitely, it's easier if I write it down. A lot of times it's easier if I do to-do lists, uh, in terms when when I have so much to do, it's easier just to write it down. In the game, I remember I was 12 and I was playing competitively and I started going to a therapist and it was a sports psychologist. I still talk to her, um, you know, 16, 18 years later. Yeah, 18 years later, okay. I still talk to my to my therapist. And it's interesting because during the game, she gave me one thing that made me win you know, my first regionals at that time. And I will never forget the entire game, it was the only game or match, I'd say, or the only tournament that I won all the way through by saying two simple words after every point, every single point, regardless if I won the point or if I lost the point. I told myself in Portuguese, calm or be calm and concentrate. Those are the two words that I said after every point, and I would keep repeating in my mind, nonstop, nonstop. Regardless of what happened before, won or lost, I won that entire tournament by saying those two words on repeat in my head nonstop. It's something I'll never forget. But I tell my students nowadays, I don't tell them to say these two words. Uh, I usually try to say is, regardless of what happened in that point, just think that it's a brand new point that you're going to play. And if you need a couple more seconds in the bench, if you need a couple more seconds before you serve, we're not playing pro, so you can, you know, bounce the ball a few more times until you, you relax and until you feel that you're okay. Maybe in the beginning, because there's so many people watching, it's going right. to be difficult. So you may be a little shaky. You may be, oh, too many people are watching me. And that's okay. You know, just understand that you got to breathe. You know, you can inhale, exhale, breathe a couple of times. And every point is a different point. That, that's one thing about tennis that is so awesome is that right. in soccer and football, hey, the things are moving. But in tennis, every time someone serves is a new point. Yes. Yes. That's, a, that's, that's great advice. Thank you. But, and, and, you know, no matter the age, whether we're young or we're older, um, I think that's great advice. And almost like having a mantra uh, with the two words you had repeated, like maybe trying something like that could help someone. They're trying to be able to shrug off mistakes, I think, during matches. That, that would be helpful. So I want to... Um, those all five lessons. Thank you. They're, they're great. Um, before we conclude, I want to segue a little bit into your current work focus off the tennis court. I understand that, you know, 
one of the roles you hold in your nine to five job is that of a diversity, equity, inclusion leader. So I wanted to ask you about diversity in tennis. Um, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about the tri-tennis program that USTA was doing, the fact that so many people have joined tennis during, you know, during the pandemic and, and following it. And um, I know on a prior podcast, I talked about the playyourcourt.com uh, platform, um, and they're trying to do some really interesting things to help people find match up with partners and coaches without having to make a ton of investment, you know, um, Sometimes that can be expensive joining a tennis club. So what do you think besides those sorts of things, the tri-tennis programs that could can be done to ensure more diversity of players in tennis in terms of age and location and other demographics? Absolutely. This is a great point. And it's something that here in the area, it's, it's very interesting to see as well. Um, when you, when you asked me this question, I, I had to do a little bit of research because if I think about it is, you know, for example, watching King Richard. I mean, you watch that movie when it talks about Venus and Serena and you understand a lot of all of the difficulties that they had to face by not having enough resources, you know, by not having, you know, using old rackets and using uh, balls and, you know, because tennis, willing or not, it is an expensive sport. You don't just buy a ball and you go on the street and you start hitting a ball. You have, you know, tennis rackets and you have strings and you have balls and equipment and shoes. There are so many things that you actually have to get before you can have even step on the court. That's why I say try tennis is a, is a great way of starting because it's an inexpensive way to start. Yeah. But when I think about uh, a lot of the things that would increase diversity on the court, that would increase this inclusion of a lot more people having the opportunity for me is really the infrastructure uh, opportunities that cities and countries can make into tennis. Building a court, it's something that is, I mean, build a million courts, right? Go out there and find demographics and find uh, areas of the country where uh, the, the demographic that you could increase having people playing tennis. First, it creates a routine. It creates the habit. It creates a way that uh, players and especially at a young age can go to the courts and start playing. But if you don't have the court, you don't right. have tennis. Tennis, you know, tennis is not a sport that you can put, you know, in Brazil, we call in <laughs> soccer, right? You put two yeah. flip-flops and that's a goal. You got a ball, you put two flip-flops in one way, two flip-flops in another way, and you can play soccer. You go right. to the beach, you play, put two flip-flops on this side and that side, and that's that's sport. But tennis, it, it requires so much more. And for us to have a diversity in the courts, we need to have courts uh, in, in places, especially underrepresented minorities, where we can have that habit, we can have the courts, we can have uh, coaches going out there. Uh, because, you know, uh, here, in, and especially in the US, there's such a big industry for tennis. And if you consider colleges, if you consider D1, D2, and D3 colleges and scholarships that go around it, if you don't have enough infrastructure, if you don't have enough support, if all of the infrastructure that you have is within tennis clubs that really, and a lot of times, even if you think country clubs that require a very large fee for you to be a member, plus a membership fee every month, right. it is difficult. And I know we are in an area, Raleigh and Durham, where there's not enough courts for the amount of people that want to play. There's right. not enough 
public courts to because I've tried to go hit and sometimes you got to wait two, three hours yeah. uh, to be able to play on a court. So if we don't have that infrastructure, if we don't have the support of larger companies or uh, the government or uh, mayors and cities and towns yeah. where you yeah. can have enough infrastructure, it's really difficult to be able to increase this diversity and especially the inclusion within tennis. We've known for years and years how hard it's been to create inclusion within tennis uh, and now uh, I think is the time as we're seeing the increase in pickleball and the investment that is coming within pickleball paddle. I mean, you name the amount of uh, beach tennis, the amount of, t- the, of, of sports that are coming in that are similar to tennis. If we can have investment of clubs and of governments that are creating that, we're going to see amazing new players in a few years that, that are starting from, from these communities for sure. Oh, absolutely. And, Totally agree. I, what an excellent point you just made. I honestly had not thought about, you know, my background, I've done, you know, work with some technology corporations, business analytics, you know, all about data. And so I'm wondering, just it's popping in my head, you know, I've never thought about trying or how or if anyone's even looking at that data in terms of how many public tennis courts exist right now in the United States. What, you know, do they need to be refurbished? All of that. I on the pickleball front, I think the fact that they have the ambassador program is what really has enabled that to, to you know, just go like wildfire around the, um, the country. Try tennis is uh, from USDA is good too. I think that that concept of having ambassadors is good. But what you you just touched on, and and thinking about it from maybe a corporate and then you know the public the government agencies and of course there's almost only so much government funding to go around for different causes, but the, the benefits of tennis, the fact that it's a lifelong game and, and for your health, you know, that, that data is there to show people live longer, you know, um, if you're playing tennis. I think that is just a great point. And I don't know how, you know, we can get some of these associations to maybe hear your message, but I hope you might give thought to that because um, <laughs> you, you, you articulated it so well. Thank you. And, and it's interesting <laughs> because you see the foundations. Roger has a foundation. Serena has a foundation. Uh, Jovak has a foundation. Uh, a, a lot of these players, they do have foundations. And and you, you can see that are a couple foundations where they go to uh, underdeveloped countries and underrepresented minorities, even within the U.S., the U.S. players. Right where they do increase, you have to, to put around the whole aspect of what is the support? What is the support system that you're creating? Because exactly. a lot of these academies, they do come with uh, full-time education. They do come with the habits that you're going to create with kids, especially at a really young age to create uh, habits and having that everyday sport that you're playing. Not only it's maintaining your physical health, it's maintaining your mental health, and it's preventing a lot of kids from doing other things when they have the education system and they have the support. But if you just look at the general population, even if you just want to increase diversity in the general population, not talking about students and kids, but talking about in general, not having tennis courts, not having enough tennis courts do drive people to go do other sports. But if you had enough tennis courts and enough tennis coaches and uh, the equipment available, readily available, it's something Mm -hmm. that I'm sure it would increase a lot of not only people playing tennis, and maybe, maybe I agree. And maybe now is the time with pickleball, uh, you know, taking the forefront. I know Martina Navratilova just was quoted as saying that she was upset that she feels like some pickleball's taking over some of the tennis courts yeah. out there. So that's even more, you know, from a scarcity perspective, that's another little aspect that's happening now. So maybe 
a discussion now among the right parties about, hey, where are the courts? <laughs> I always from a marketing perspective, it's like, hey, where are the courts? Um, great point. Great point. I know I've taken up a lot of your time today, Raphael, and I, I want to pose one final question. Who are your favorite pro tennis players right now from Brazil and otherwise? And who do you think um, will be the winners on the men's and women's uh, fronts at Roland Garros 2022? Very great question. Brazil-wise, I do see that there's a very interesting new generation coming um, with the Brazil team, both men and women. Uh, I do follow the Melly Jenny uh, brothers, and I think they're great. I've seen them play since they were five or seven uh, because they were in the same um, place that I used to to train at, and, and I follow them. And what I is their last name again? Melly Jenny. Uh, they are, yeah, they are from the same – they're cousins or – I'd say niece and nephew from Fernando Meligeni, who was a player that won a lot of tournaments. Uh, he's from Argentina, but he he played in Brazil for a long, long time. Okay. So I follow both of them. Um, I used to follow Bellucci a lot, Marco Bellucci a lot, which he hasn't done that great over the past couple of years, but I do follow him uh, so to, from time to time. Uh, and it's interesting because Rolando role right now, uh, Fernando Meligeni, oh, Fernando Meligeni, and then Felipe Meligeni, who is the, the nephew he just won the first uh qualifier round so oh, i was just great. following him today and he just won and it was very nice uh, right. but in terms of pro yeah i think man we, we've seen this new generation and we talked earlier that 2002 2003 we saw the generation changing from uh agassi and sampras and guga and if sampras a little bit earlier but guga and, and some other players too uh, where and Roddick, where we saw that moving into Roger, Nadal, Djokovic, and Djokovic came a little bit later, but in Murray and other players. And that generation stayed for so much longer than the previous generation. They've been there, I don't yeah. know, 20 years. It's insane. I mean, <laughs> it it's is. insane to see Venus and Serena winning in 98 and them winning in 2001. Right. Uh, and Roger winning his last, first Grand Slam in 2002 and winning his last one in 2020. So yeah. I think this is an amazing generation. I mean, Rafa Nadal playing amazing tennis still today. Yeah. So it's very nice to see this generation going across. Now, we are seeing a shift of this new generation coming in. Yeah. And I will tell you that Carlo Alvaraz, the new Spanish yeah. player, yeah. Alcaraz, he is out of this plan. I mean, his last tournament in Madrid where he won uh, Rafa and Djokovic. Yeah. Some of, some of those games, I mean, some of those, those points, it's just. The, the Djokovic. Yeah. Alcaraz game was such a high level of tennis. I felt like that was the final. If I thought I was watching the, the final, even though they, they met up in the semifinal, but yeah. Um, so you think he's one to watch? Do you oh, think I, I, th I think his, I think he's the one I stress very is good. Rude is good. I mean, they're all good. No, they're great. Right. They're, uh, great. they're all amazing players. But he's just coming with the different being 19 year old and, and make, being able to play at that level. It's yeah. something that that I think I haven't seen before. I, I, I think maybe Roger was at a really high level. Rafa was a really high level. But the, the high level that he's playing right now is it's it's out of this world. And it's very interesting to see. I think he has a great shot uh, at winning on the women's side. Uh, yeah. I hope I hope Naomi comes back to play. I really love watching her play. Uh, I think Americans right now have great players coming forward too, and I really can't wait to see who's gonna who's gonna move forward on on the French Open or Roland Garros. But 
for yeah. the men's. I, I really hope that uh, Carlo comes comes forward and wins a couple. And and who knows? There's always some interesting uh, facts that happen in Rolongaro, but I'm I'm quite interested to see what's going to happen uh, if, this year. Tournaments are always interesting. And uh, thank you for sharing your picks. I, of course, uh, I am a huge Rafa Nadal fan, but uh, sadly he's got uh, his foot, I think is giving him some problems. So I would always pick Rafa. I'd love to see him continue the history at Roland Garros, but if not Rafa, then I'm all about some, you know, I'm married to a Spaniard. So I'm all about some Carlitos, um, you know, Alcaraz. And I, I do think too, that his team and the fact that his coach, you know, Juan Carlos is a former, you know, a, elite player who, who experienced everything on the tour. I think his team and support around him is really helping him mentally. And I think he seems mature beyond his years it's it's just amazing but I think that team is so important I, and I think that's similar to Rafa who's had such a great you know his family and, and that same team for so many years because you you see some of the these professionals where they're switching their coaches but um yeah Rafa's mine and if not Rafa then Carlitos I either one of them I'd love to see win and then um on the women's front I agree and uh, Naomi it would be it would be nice to see her I really love Simona Halep I've always, yeah. uh, and uh, she's always been good on, on the clay, but I've got to tell you, Iga Swiatek is looking, you know, tremendous, uh, you know, watched her over this past weekend. So um, I feel like probably Iga um, is going to be a con major contender, but we'll see, right? And it's going to be fun to watch. I can't wait. I, I absolutely can't wait. And it's one thing that every time I have the chance, I leave TV open, I leave TV on while I'm working. So yeah. I, I can I can definitely watch because it's well, so much fun. It's it's a lot of days and it's a lot of games and it's, it's a lot of fun. So can't wait. Oh, well, and actually, all the tournaments because I know we still have two, two, two three this year. Yeah. So I, I can't and, wait. Uh, yeah, much. we do the Grand Slams. It's so, so much fun to see the Grand Slams. I was going to mention one other app that I do like, a technology I do like. It's the ATP WTA Live app. Um, and I have that on the phone, which is really cool because you can see, you know, the live scores from each of the three. Like they're in Strasbourg and I think they're at um, Geneva you know, today and then a couple of, you know, different places. But if you glance at it at the wrong time, you know, depending on the time zones, you may find out who wins when you don't want to know yet who wins. But I, I will mention that and throw that in. But listen, Raphael, this has been so wonderful. I so appreciate you sharing the five lessons that you've learned as a tennis coach with our listeners. I know they're going to appreciate it. Um, I want to thank you and say obrigado. <laughs> I hope I'm pronouncing that the right way. And uh, just want to thank you for taking the time um, with us today. You are our first international Love, Love Tennis podcast guest. And that really means a lot because one of our goals is to share diverse perspectives on tennis and diverse insights into the game. So you've helped us do that today. So I just want to say thank you. And I wish you all the best for the remainder of 2022. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm very excited to be here and I can't wait to see what we're going to achieve, not only in tennis, but here in the Raleigh-Durham area. And if there's anything that I can do for you, let me know. Thank you. And that's a wrap. If you liked listening to this episode, don't miss visiting our website, love-lovetennis.com to check out more episodes, 
and more content about all things tennis. Because Love Love Tennis is where tennis talk starts.